If you have your Bibles, turn back to Exodus, second book in the Bible, so it's mostly to the front. If you have a device, you can probably search Exodus chapter 3. We're going to dismiss kids. There's a few of us here. Welcome, you kiddos. Four, age four through fifth grade. Off you go. They'll return to us as we conclude a message and then move back into a response time of singing, singing our prayers, singing our heart to God, and coming to the communion table as we do regularly every Sunday when we gather. We're moving into one of the most powerful and pivotal chapters in the story, and in in some ways, in all of Scripture, all of the Hebrew Scriptures, this chapter stands pretty high uh, in their thought, in their mind, and in their importance. A holy, divine, life-changing encounter. Would you follow along with me, or just listen from Exodus chapter 3, the first 12 verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord, Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God said, but I will be with you. This shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. This may be a fairly familiar passage for many of us. It's been preached much been probably read through much for those of us that have attempted to read through the scriptures, maybe in a year, maybe in three years, in some other form. Most of us have probably made it at least to Exodus 3. It's not usually where we get stuck and slow down. It comes a little bit later. But may we hear it with new ears if it is a familiar story. I think it's rich and deep and we can mine much out of it. We'll spend quite a bit of time, I think, in this chapter 
And really, the, the episode at the bush continues into chapter 4. So it's meant to be collected as a whole, but there's so much in it to, to pause and work our way through. As we move through this book, if you're counting pacing and wondering, how long will we be in the wilderness? <laughs> there are portions that we will move rather quickly through as we get into some of the plagues, as we get into some of the repetition that happens later in, in the story. There'll be some, maybe even whole chapters and multiple chapters that we'll take in a breath and probably not read its entirety. So I'm inviting you to be familiar with this story as one of your reading plans through the scriptures uh, in this season, in this coming year, uh, that you would read through Exodus multiple times because it is important and helpful to see that full story as we press in to some of the specifics. So Moses is tending flock. He is a shepherd He's about to get a whole new flock by God's call. It's a lowly and humble job, that of a shepherd, an agrarian, agrarian worker. If we assume that he left Egypt as a young man but grown somewhere in his 30s or 40, as elsewhere in Scripture mentions that he was 40 when he moved to the wilderness, by Exodus chapter 7, it will be declared to us that Moses is 80 when this encounter happens. And then he lives to the ripe age of 120. This potentially isn't an exact numbering of years, but a framing. There's important numbers as, as signs and symbols throughout scriptures. Needless to say, this is a long amount of time. Almost a lifetime has been spent in Midian, raising a family, living as a shepherd, humble and lowly, essentially, but valuing what life looked like in that day and that time. We'll see the signs later on in the story of his closeness with his father-in-law, with that extended community. He is like a refugee, but he's been welcomed in as one of their own. Almost certainly, after 40 or 50 years, Moses is not looking for a life change. A career change. It seems, as the story goes, that he's quite content and settled where he's at. This is life for him. He's likely going to finish his days in this place. Almost certainly he's not praying for God to speak to him and to give him a vision for the next part of his life. I think it's worth pausing and saying, it's never too late to meet with God. It's never too late to have an encounter that does shift our course and our direction, our way of thinking, our mindset, our worldview. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, how old or young you are, what your background is or isn't, or your past mistakes. Remember from the story, Moses is guilty of killing a man, whether intentionally or not, whether stepping in for justice or simply reacting he is on the run. He had to flee from Egypt. He was like a prince in Egypt, raised by the Pharaoh's own daughter. And now he's in a humble, lowly position. He doesn't quite have the pristine resume that we might think we need to have to be used mightily by God. Moses wasn't looking to become one of the most significant world leaders deliverers, transformers, but yet God sees him and calls him. 
So what is your story? Be reminded that it's never too late. And you may have seasons in your life that you have felt humbled. You felt that life didn't go the way you thought it would at all. I remember being 28, working alone as a part-time stock room helper in a mall in Wisconsin. That was not the trajectory I thought my life was going to take. And yet, in that extended season, God met me. I didn't have a burning bush experience, but in that extended season, I felt God's presence. I felt what he was inviting me to learn, a new kind of contentedness, a new kind of trust. I sensed his presence and sensed his voice. And it was out of that extended season that uh, we, Catherine and I, collectively felt God's call back into full-time ministry, which ultimately led back to Union Hill. Not the way I would have drawn it up in a time of needing to walk through a relative wilderness in those back hallways of that stock room. Perhaps this morning, what you or maybe we all need is to be reminded of God's call upon our life. Maybe it's that kind of a moment as I share that, that story. Maybe it's a decade or more ago but you had an encounter that shifted your direction, that you know was something that God brought into your life. For some of us, we simply need to be reminded by that call, by that presence, whether it was something more akin to the burning bush example, but most of us probably have more of a backroom stock worker example. Didn't expect to meet God there, but I sensed his presence, his voice, his love, and his call, and it led me in a whole new direction. Perhaps some of us simply need to hear that for the first time. We're in that kind of back room, wilderness place, unexpected place. You would say, I, I never thought life would look like this, and it's not really what I wanted. God, get our attention. Burn within us. We want to feel you see you, hear from you. We are not demanding a burning bush kind of experience. That was a one and only. But we know that's who you are, God. God's ways and his methods shift. They're unique and as infinite for each one of his children as we are. We may not need to have one of those experiences to walk by faith, but I think it's okay to long for it. You know, I read stories like this in Scripture, maybe you do, and we'll see, we'll see the relationship Moses has with Yahweh throughout the story. Hearing his voice, communicating with him, conversationally almost, like a friend. Are you not envious when you read those kind of stories? I want, I want, I think it's okay to be envious in that kind of way. God, I want to hear from you. If you would show up in a burning bush, my whole life would be changed. No more doubting. I would do anything. Maybe sometimes we arrogantly feel that. If we had these kinds of experiences that we read in the pages of scriptures, then, man, we would, we would really get moving for God. But we are invited to walk by faith. Now, certainly, we're reminded that God can get our attention however he wants, and we praise him for that. The God who changes his methods and ways 
is the God we still worship, even though he himself is unchanging. God can get our attention when we're not even looking for him, as it seems in this encounter. Perhaps he was subtly trying to get Moses' attention for many years, and Moses had tuned him out. And what it required was a burning bush. I don't want to read too much into that story. I'm inviting us, and I think you are here present, saying, I want to pursue God more fully and faithfully. It's part of the reason for the rhythms that I've invited us to of walking and waking and thanking throughout this year. Those are intentional rhythms of pursuing God, of seeking Him, of not going through life with blinders on, but saying, God, I want to see you wherever you might be. And I want to put rhythms into my life, and perhaps in this Lenten season, a rhythm of, of some form of fasting that says, with intentionality, I don't want to miss you, God. I don't want to need to see, have a burning bush show up for you to speak to me. Because often, and we see this too throughout Scripture, God works within our heart like my experience in that stock room, back room, all alone. I didn't have one specific moment, but many moments of knowing God was near. And in that extended season, trying to walk with Him and be renewed in faith. God speaks through gentle whispers, through His presence in that way, sometimes through visions, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through burning bushes. However He might speak, show up in our life, we invite that. Would we pray a simple prayer as Moses did? The burning bush, not consuming the bush, but on fire, as if any of us wouldn't draw near to see what that was about. But then notice Moses' response. Here I am, God. And while Moses is afraid, it says he covered his face for fear upon looking. Something was powerful in the bush, some, some holy divine character that made him afraid. Not just the fact that this was an unusual sight, but something in the presence of God himself. Would we be bold enough to pray that kind of prayer? Here I am, and to remain. Moses remains, he doesn't flee. God, here I am, even this morning. My sitting here, I want to be more than a religious devotion or a mundane routine. My desire would be to draw close to you, to be in your presence, and to hear your voice. To remain with you. I don't know if any of us will ever have a miraculous experience and encounter with God in this kind of way. Perhaps, perhaps God does will that. Perhaps he has already shown up and spoken and called. Perhaps it's written on the pages of Scripture, and we would say by faith, it is enough. God, I long, I'm envious, I want to be closer to your presence and to hear your voice and to clearly know, to have doubts just shed away, burn out of my life. And yet, I do not demand that. You are enough, and what you have done is enough. And I know that if you have prayed some, some semblance of that simple prayer, and sometimes simple prayers are the most powerful ones, here I am, God. Here I am, God. What I do know is that God is pleased with you. He doesn't just love you, he delights in you. His face beams at that prayer. 
even if you would say, I think it's more filled with doubt than it is with faith right now, here I am, God. He delights in you. He is with you. It's good to want, to long, but are we waiting that until we have some kind of an encounter or confirmation like that, we are going to live life as, as we have been living, maybe even trying our best, trying to do good or be good. But has God already spoken and called, invited and drawn in? In fact, are we not just invited to live by faith, but compelled to? As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must walk by faith. We must walk encouraged by the faith of others when ours doesn't feel as strong. That's why we need the community. We need the community of, of followers and believers throughout Scripture. And we need this kind of community that when some faith is strong and robust, we lean on it. Look at God's character revealed here in the story. Look at the way that he speaks. God sees, he hears, he knows. These are all very present, active awareness verbs. God knows, this is the Hebrew yada. That may sound familiar to some, even if you don't know much Hebrew. Yada means to know deeply, intimately, to have experienced it, essentially. It's used in what would sound to us like a strange way. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew, yada, his wife Eve, and she conceived. There's something powerfully intimate about that knowing, that closeness. It's used in various other ways, like it is here. God says, I know of your suffering. How does God say that? What seems like this early in the story. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah will prophesy of Jesus or of the Messiah. Jesus is unnamed, but of the coming Messiah in this, in this way. And the famous Isaiah 53 verse 3. The Messiah was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That word familiar is yada. The coming Messiah is yada with suffering. He knows it. And we see, if we fast forward through the story, the coming Jesus encountering suffering, pain, and rejection, so that we have a God who knows everything we have ever walked through and knows deeply the pain, the hurt, the oppression of all people everywhere, always. This is our God. To those who suffer, God knows. He can relate. Furthermore, God says, I have come down and I will bring up. God enters into the story here. It seems like, and we've said this many times as we've journeyed already in the first couple chapters, that God has been absent for a few hundred years. There, the faith is still there by many, especially some of those remarkable women that we've looked at closely. They feared God. They held on after centuries of seeming distance from their God. Now God enters in in a whole new way. This is who our God is, unchanging. It's the story that keeps getting repeated throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, into the Greek Scriptures. It is Jesus himself coming into the story. 
it's both twofold. God sends his agents, his messengers, his Messiah, himself, and the Messiah comes. The Gospel of John declares almost 40 times that Jesus was sent by God the Father, sent from heaven on this mission into earth. By Jesus' own words, his own lips, John 3, 17, after the famous John 3, 16, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. And again and again, repeatedly, Jesus was said to have been sent in. We have a sending God. But Jesus also willingly came by his own lips. I have come to seek and save the lost, Luke 19, 10. I have come that you might have life and life to the full. John 10, 10. I have come down from, the, from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father, John 6, 38. And again and again, we could find those examples of Jesus himself saying, I have come. So Jesus has been sent and he has come. Our God is a sending God and he is a coming God. Right into our context. Right into our day-to-day. Right into our lowest moments. Right into our unexpected moments right into our oppression or suffering or trial or pain, our God comes. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he comes. If that's how amazing God is, why does he choose us? Why does he send Moses? Clearly, this God does not need Moses. Why does he send us? Fast forward all the way to our story of Jesus' famous words to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. Matthew 28, kind of throughout the millennia, has been called the great commission, the commissioning, the sending of God's people. Why send us? For all followers of Jesus after have taken those words essentially as this is the commission that we have been given to be his witnesses, to give testimony of who our God is and what he's done in and through Jesus to all the earth. But our God does not need us. He wants us. He wants to be with us. Because Moses says, who am I? Have you ever felt that prayer? Maybe even in these moments as I've been inviting us into a potential Lenten practice or a a shift, a change, a sacrifice, a new way of thinking. Maybe you've had those experiences like I did in in that back stock room. Maybe it was more like this miraculous burning bush experience. Maybe it was the gentle whisper of whatever that experience was. And you felt like you've known God's voice or heard his voice and it's, it's, it's changing course, it's changing direction. You feel it. Have you not felt also, who am I? Why me? Maybe doubt creeps in. What good would it do anyway? That much sacrifice and there will be no real impact. I'm certain of it. You maybe even feel it trying to be faithful to your daily call now in this place, in this season, at this time. God, who am I? Why me? Notice that God's primary answer to that uncertainty or doubt or fear, and we'll look more at this encounter in the coming weeks, but notice that God's primary answer is, 
I will be with you. I will be with you. So now go, I'm sending you. I will be with you. Do those words sound familiar? Let's turn now fully to Matthew 28, verse 16, and the great commission. The 11 disciples went up to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. This is post-resurrection, right at the end of that gospel. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. I'm sending you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What's left out here is their response. Wait, us? Who are we? (laughs) That if any have received this commission personally have probably said the same thing. Make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth? How daunting, how massive of a call. Why us? Who am I? That's left out. I think it's probably in there, in their hearts at least. But Jesus' very next words are the same as God Yahweh's to Moses. And surely I am with you always. This is who our God is, unchanging. Clearly, I believe that the author of Matthew had Exodus 3 in mind. These kinds of incredible commissions and calls and sendings. While our God does not need us, he wants us. He invites us in to be his agents, likely not on a Moses scale, likely not on an apostle's scale, but we don't have the end of the story written. But we are invited to be his agents to work for freedom, to champion for deliverance of the oppressed, to see, as Lauren reminded us last week, to see those even around us who are hurting and oppressed. And we may not be able to make some cosmic difference. That might be the answer, because God alone can. But we may be able to make a difference in that one's life. You know that old parable analogy of the boy tossing the starfish into the sea after the raging storm, and the tide had withdrawn, and all the starfish were up on the beach, and he was concerned that they were going to die. And there were thousands of them. And an old man walked by and said, you'll never be able to save them all. What difference does it make? And he looked down and picked up the starfish and chucked another one. It made a difference for that one. I love the heart and the simple faith of what could, it, could be a real kind of story. Maybe we're invited to make a difference for that one. And whenever we face that same kind of doubt or uncertainty, the why me, send someone else. You've got it wrong, God. May we hear the one promise of God. This wasn't the promise of God for ease, for flourishing. No, no, you you will make a difference in all the world. That's not the promise from Jesus even. The promise is I will be with you. This is God's heart and his desire. Now, interestingly, God says to Moses, and this will be a sign to you. When all of this takes place, you'll come back to this very mountain and worship me. What kind of a sign is that? Now, later, this interaction will prove some more miraculous signs because Moses is a little bit reluctant to go. 
I love the sign for faith. God is so much bigger than our present circumstances. He sees the full story. He invites Moses to live by faith, and he knows that by, by saying it's already done. It's already done. That will be a sign to you. Simply walk by faith now. I am with you. The sign is coming. Jesus essentially says the th same thing. And surely I will be with you to the end of the age. Jesus said something similar when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He pointed toward the future. Not meaning the temple itself, but himself, his own body. Many of the religious leaders and the Pharisees came to Jesus demanding a sign. Jesus, show us a sign and then we will believe in you, which is so ironic because throughout the last days or years, Jesus has been going from town to town, place to place, healing all the sick, making 180 gallons of wine, walking on water, feeding thousands, even raising the dead. And they come to him and say, Jesus, we want to see a sign. What they're saying is we want to see this our sign. We're demanding you act for us. Our terms. And Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but none will be given it. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He points back to what has already been done. That Jonah was in the belly of a fish, as good as dead, and yet preserved, rescued, delivered to go on to preach in faithfulness for the repentance of many. So Jesus does both. He looks back and forward at the same time, saying, it is done. Who our God is, is enough. And in the future, it will be enough. It is complete. So when we walk into our own doubts and uncertainties, and there's nothing wrong with that, we're invited to believe. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. We rest on the call and character of God that has persisted throughout his story, throughout the millennia. We long for more, that's right and good, more of your voice, more awareness of your presence, God, more clarity on our, my next steps, please. And where you don't give it, it is enough, for God is with us. God is with you. Would you walk with him this week? Will we draw near to God as he is drawing near to us? Now, something amazing has happened because Moses is right to be afraid of God or the power, the divine holiness of God to not come near. We'll press into maybe what, why he would need to take off of his sandals, why he couldn't come near. Throughout this story, we'll see that God is dangerous like fire is dangerous. Don't touch the, the, the blazing furnace. That's the, the power of God. That's his danger. It could take our life. There's something that's happening more like that than God is angry or wrathful and will strike you down if you come close. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the story here. We are meant to fear God, and we'll address that as we go through the story as well, because learning the holiness and awe and reverence of God is important. But there's something here, and we'll see it later in the tabernacle too, that we can't draw fully close to God like, like a flaming furnace for fear of our own safety even because it's our, the character of God. Something's happened in Jesus who has embodied flesh, the God become man. 
And through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection through the grave, we can now draw near to the presence of God. The curtain in the temple is torn. Access to God is possible. God is released fully. The Spirit of God dwells within us. Jesus has fulfilled something that allows the writers of Scripture to say this. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 3, 2, 3, 12. In Christ Jesus and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. That, that would have been amazing and startling for any Jew familiar with their Hebrew scriptures. In Jesus alone, we may now approach our God with freedom and with confidence. That's our position today if we walk by Christ. Hebrews 4.14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So let us come. Let us come with confidence. Let us not be demanding a sign from God because we have already been given signs. One of them hangs on the wall there. Others are sitting on this table here. The signs of what has been done would allow us to walk by faith and walk near to him. This is a heart attitude thing. In a moment, I'll ask you, to, I'll invite you to physically move and receive the elements so there is a walking toward symbolism there. But this is a heart attitude that turns to God and says, I draw near to you. It may not feel like it. It may not feel like much. Singing these songs to be sung prayers. And at times when you can't sing these words, saying, saying and praying from your heart these simple prayers like Moses, here I am, God. Maybe that's all you can pray at times. Here I am, God. And your God sees, knows, hears, loves, and says, I have come, and I am with you, and I will lead you up. This is who our God is. So draw near and respond. God, our desire is to walk toward you and with you to not simply have, have you get our attention. And if you are, and if you will, may it be, and to your glory, where our eyes have been tuned to other things, where the regular rhythms of our day are not the path you want us on. We turn back. We repent. We turn a new direction toward you. For many, back toward you. Again this morning, again this day, with the prospect of a new week ahead, we draw near. We seek to remain. Teach us of your holiness, your awesomeness, your goodness, your love for us. We thank you for your promise that you are with us. You see, you hear, you know, you will come and you will lift us up and raise us up 
individually as we turn to you, but even more importantly, as a community, as your people. Be honored and glorified, delighted and pleased with us. Even in the midst of our doubts, we come. To you be the glory. Now, here in your church, across your world, forever and ever. Amen.